this uh, lecture today is uh, no exception to uh, what I just said. Uh, we have in Doug Massey uh, one of the world's most distinguished sociologists. And uh, I know that the topic that he has laid out for us, America's War on Immigrants, is one that is both of uh, immense importance and is very topical today. And I know all of you are here uh, looking forward to that lecture. Uh, to introduce Professor Massey more formally, I have invited a previous uh, President's Distinguished Lecturer, uh, Marta Tienda, Professor of Sociology and uh, Public Policy, to introduce her colleague, Marta. Thank you, uh, Shirley. Uh, it's really my great pleasure to introduce my distinguished colleague, uh, Douglas Massey, the Henry G. Bryan Professor of Sociology and Public Affairs, and a faculty affiliate of the po Office of Population Research. Uh, Princeton University granted Professor Massey a PhD in sociology in 1978. But then he crossed the Delaware to join UPenn's faculty in sociology and population studies, and he rose through the ranks at an accelerated, on an accelerated clock. And following a seven-year interlude at the University of Chicago, where I had the privilege of working with him to rebuild the Population Research Center, he returned to Penn for seven, several years. Imagine the excitement in 2003 when OPR and sociology department in the Woodrow Wilson School learned that Doug would once again cross the Delaware in the right direction. Uh, Professor Massey's honors and awards are too numerous to recite. We would need volume two of this one, surely. Uh, so suffice it just to note a few highlights, such as membership in the National Academy of Sciences, the American Philosophical Society, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and the Academy, American Academy of Political and Social Science. He's also served as president of the Population Association of America, the American Sociological Association, and currently is president of the American Academy of Political and Social Science. He is also on leave, and I'm envious, um, looking forward to it. Uh, he's a, a fellow at the Russell Sage Foundation, where he's working on, I would guess, at least two, maybe three books. Um, in academia, the measure of the man, to borrow a phrase from Drake and Caton's uh, Black Metropolis, is based on contributions to scholarship, to teaching, and to public service. On all counts, Professor Massey excels. He's a world-class social scientist. Uh, whose inter international renown has been earned in the field, conducting survey research, in the classroom, and through service on influential national and international advisory committees, and through his distinguished contributions to scholarship. During our tenure at uh, Chicago, the under urban underclass debate was in high gear, and Chicago was the crucible of intellectual discourse. Douglas Massey left an indelible footprint on the debate about the causes and consequences of concentrated poverty by putting residential segregation back in the intellectual discussion with his multi-award-winning book, American Apartheid. Professor Massey elevated Robert Park, Ernest Burgess, and Louis Wirth's Chicago School of Sociology to a higher standard of evidentiary rigor. It's not an exaggeration to claim that he changed the way social scientists think about concentrated poverty. American Apartheid is a timeless and a brilliant treatise that remains highly current even 15 years after its publication. Its chapters are regularly reprinted in new anthologies. More generally, Professor Massey's highly influential writings on race, urban sociology, international migration, and public policy re-energize academic and public discourse about the nature 
the causes and the consequences of inequality, not only in the United States, but throughout the world. In 1987, Professor Massey also received a 10-year merit award from NIH to continue and extend a program of research about Mexican migration that already was attracting a good deal of attention. This award recognizes innovation in migration research and allowed him great latitude to innovate in the study of migration, which to that point had almost been a sort of stepchild in demographic research. It was not amenable to the kind of formality of, of, more, of uh, births and deaths. True to form, he changed the way social scientists think about the causes and consequences of international migration. He developed the ethnosurvey, which is now widely used and adapted in, in, uh, throughout the world in migration studies. And he used binational designs to link sending and receiving communities for a better understanding of how social origins influence economic destinations. He and his collaborators produced several volumes over the years, including two award-winning books, including Milagros en la Frontera, Miracles on the Border, and Beyond Smoke and Mirrors, both based on the Mexican Migration Project. And for the scientific community, he has left a legacy of unique uh, data available broadly for generations to come. So Professor Massey's formidable accomplishments, honors, and awards, and well-recognized um, distinction are a matter of public record. So let me close by disclosing what is not a matter of public record. You knew, Doug. Uh, allow me to share the insider's view of the scholar and the gentleman and, that students and colleagues just know fondly as Doug. Official birth records show that Doug was born in Olympia, Washington. But I'm positive that was in this life only. And in another life, Doug was born in Mexico. We often joke that Doug is a Mexican trapped in an Anglo's body. <laughs> Unlike Princeton University also, which generally, generously funds all incoming graduate students, the University of Chicago market economy regularly admitted some um, uh, students of all kinds all kinds of graduate students, but with partial fellowships, partial stipends, and many with very limited, inadequate stipends. So when we arrived at Chicago in 1987, there was this seemingly endless supply of graduate students looking to work as research assistants. Well, Doug's Mexican migration project was a big draw for graduate students who were quantitatively disposed, and maybe even qualitative, willing to go into the field for various periods of time. And Massey Enterprises provided full employment in both sociology and demography. One of our colleagues complained that Doug distorted the market by raising the wage rates for graduate students. <laughs> we thought it was a real deal at the time, but they thought, oh my gosh, why are you paying so much? But compared to where we had come from, that was uh, great. Um, I don't know that Doug ever turned away any student. He gave everyone willing to try an opportunity to shine, and he has produced a distinguished roster of students whose accomplishments he regularly celebrates at professional meetings by hosting receptions of gratitude and continued appreciation for their time on his projects. His generosity to students is admirable and matched by his unwavering loyalty to friends and colleagues. I'm glad to be in his circle. Doug is a student's professor. He's a professor's professor and a president's professor. President Tillman, fellow faculty, students, and friends, I give you Professor Douglas Maxey, who will discuss America's war on poverty. Well, when she said uh, she was going to tell some of the personal things, I thought, uh, for a moment, I thought I was in trouble. But um, <clears throat> fortunately, she didn't go into any detail on my regular hosting of tequila parties. And, <clears throat> 
what I want to talk about today uh, is uh, uh, a development that's uh, occurred over the past 20 years. We are now in a very unusual period in American history, uh, in many ways uniquely anti-immigrant in its uh, uh, public debate, in public tone, and particularly in public policy. Uh, this anti-immigrant period that we find ourselves in has uh, a number of root causes, which I want to describe to you, and it has some very serious consequences. And uh, fortunately, uh, I don't think it is uh, uh, an inherent uh, problem. It's not an inherent set of affairs. It's rather something that we very much have brought on ourselves, very much of our own making, and therefore we can uh, fix it if we choose to do so. Uh, it's highly appropriate that I talk today about uh, immigration because it was here at Princeton uh, about 30, exactly 30 years ago. Uh, I just finished my PhD in 1978, and a friend of mine introduced me to a, an anthropologist who'd spent a year living in a town in Mexico that sent lots of people to the United States. And uh, my, my friend uh, said, you got to go talk to this anthropologist. He's got all, these, all this data. Uh, uh, but uh, he's an anthropologist, he doesn't know what to do with it. Uh, and so um, uh, I met him, and we started talking, and he showed me, he, has this, he had this loose leaf binder, and within, you go to each page, and there'd be a page, and he had everybody in the entire household, their first and last trip to the United States, a complete light migration history, full detail. And I was just impressed with, uh, you know, you could, this was back just when undocumented migration, illegal migration was heating up as an issue. So I was impressed with the way an anthropologist going into the field could collect information on a very a difficult to study topic. You can't just go knock on a door uh, and say, hi, I'm from the government and I want to know if there are any illegal migrants in this household. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I started collaborating with him. Um, I got uh, a small grant from OPR and uh, hired the student data punching agency uh, uh, to um, uh, enter the data from his code books, his uh, notebooks, into machine-readable form, and we began to analyze them and published a series of papers together. Uh, this exercise was so successful that uh, I decided to ramp it up and uh, proposed a, a grant to uh, National Institutes of Health uh, to take effect when I first became an assistant professor uh, to basically replicate this approach, this blend of ethnographic and survey approach, uh, in uh, four different communities uh, to see whether you could do this on a, on a bigger scale. Uh, that proved to be successful. So then I ramped it up further and proposed that I uh, survey four to six communities every single year uh, on into the future and build up a large database over time on processes of documented and undocumented migration to the United States from Mexico and uh, not sit on the data but make it available publicly to users so that people could study this topic, which was gathering, uh, garnering a lot of attention and uh, really hadn't uh, sustained very good work because of a lack of data. And that became um, the Mexican Migration Project. Uh, the Mexican Migration Project has been in the field in Mexico uh, since 1982. It's been continuously funded for the past 27, 28 years. Uh, every year we go into the, uh, the field in Mexico, round, do a round of surveys in different communities all over. and uh, and uh, process the data, enter it into uh, our data files, and put it up on the web. And you can see the uh, website there for the MMP. Uh, not being content with um, uh, our second conquest of Mexico, 
uh, we decided to uh, move on to the rest of Latin America and in 1998 launched the Latin American Migration Project to take the same methods that we employed in Mexico and uh, apply them sequentially to different countries around Latin America, doing surveys in different countries around the country, around different countries in Latin America. Uh, uh, I created a monster, uh, and, and the monster had a kid. Uh, so now the Latin American Migration Project has been going on for 30 years. Uh, it's got uh, 124 community samples, 20,000 households, 135,000 persons. Uh, in, uh, in the sample, there are almost 23,000 U.S. migrants, about 14,000 of whom were undocumented at the time of their last trip to the United States. Uh, the Latin American Migration Project has fielded surveys in Colombia, Costa Rica, Dominican Republic, Haiti, Guatemala, Nicaragua, Peru, Peru and Puerto Rico. We have 42 communities in the database, about 7,000 households, 39,000 people, 3,400 migrants, and uh, 427 of whom were undocumented at the time of their last trip. So uh, these are the databases that I make public. Uh, that uh, uh, Now the MMP alone has more than 2,000 registered users that download the data and use it. It's where the government goes when they need to find out information about patterns and processes of undocumented migration. Uh, and I will be uh, drawing, I won't specifically um, describe the projects any further, but I will be drawing uh, on, on these databases to make some of the points that I want to make in my lecture. Um, I want to talk about the roots of the war on immigrants. Uh, and the roots, uh, paradoxically, go back to the American Civil Rights Movement and come about as a result of the civil rights movement in the United States. The 1960s was the period when the civil rights movement came into its own. 1964, the Civil Rights Act uh, outlawed discrimination in uh, retail markets and rental markets and public lodging in uh, restaurants and public services and so on. Uh, the 1965 Voting Rights Act empowered the federal government to make sure that uh, uh, districts would not be disenfranchising minority voters. The 1968 Fair Housing Act uh, declared discrimination in the sale or rental of housing to be unlawful. The 1974 uh, uh, Equal Credit Opportunity Act uh, uh, made it illegal to discriminate in the provision of uh, mortgage lending to people. And the 1977 Community Reinvestment Act made uh, redlining illegal. All this legislation passed in a very short span of time. Uh, and, uh, but the Civil Rights era was not only about uh, ending Jim Crow in the South. It was about deracializing American society more, more fully, and particularly deracializing federal policy, which had been racialized uh, in the course of the New Deal uh, in order to pull in Southern votes to support the various economic redistributive uh, programs that have been put in place. So Lyndon Johnson launched his war on poverty. Um, and, uh, but at the same time, immigration law had itself been racialized, going back uh, way into the 1880s when we passed the Chinese Exclusion Acts, and then 1907, the Gentlemen's Agreement with Japan. Uh, but the, the main thing was the Immigration and Nationality Act, which since 1921 had built in quotas that uh, sought to uh, prevent the entry of many of our grandparents or people like them. Uh, it was an explicitly uh, racially uh, guided uh, set of quotas that favored Northern and Western Europeans and sought to uh, uh, limit the entry of Southern and Eastern Europeans and banned entirely Asian and Black African uh, uh, people from entering the United States. 
So uh, in 1965, Congress uh, brought uh, up a piece of legislation to repeal and end the discriminatory national origins quotas. At the time, it was seen as a piece of civil rights legislation to bring federal law and immigration law into conformity with what was happening, trying to take race out of public policy in the United States. And so they passed the 1965 amendments to the Immigration and Nationality Act, which, uh, which took away the discriminatory quotas, gave each country uh, in, in, the, in the Eastern Hemisphere, which is basically Europe, everything but the Americas, gave them each a, a quota of 20,000 visas per year, so that it was equal, and, um, uh, and uh, repealed the bans on Asian migration and black migration from Africa and so on. Uh, many people, and, and people look back on this and say the 65 Act transformed American immigration. And, and in some way that's true. Uh, we wouldn't have as many Asian migrants as we uh, observe today. Uh, but a third of the Asian migrants actually stemmed from our misadventures in Southeast Asia and came in as refugees. But nonetheless, uh, it did open the door to Asian migration. Many people think the 65 Act is also responsible for uh, Latin American migration, but uh, it's exactly the opposite is true. Uh, before 65, the, uh, the 1965 Act imposed the first ever numerical restrictions on migration from the Western Hemisphere. Until 1965 Act, there was no numerical limitation on migration from the Americas. The 65 Act phased in and imposed, starting in 1968, a cap for the hemisphere of 120,000 visas uh, per year. Uh, and then in 1976, an amendment passed to um, bring uh, the Western Hemisphere into conformity with the Eastern Hemisphere, and each country got 20,000 visas per year. Uh, and this was done not as a piece of immigration law, but mostly these were done as civil rights measures. The other thing that happened was the unilateral termination of a guest worker program known as the Bracero Program that the United States had run for 22 years. Uh, it had started small during the Second World War uh, and was continued after the war, and at its peak was bringing in every year 450,000 workers from Mexico for short-term labor, mostly in agriculture uh, in the Southwest. Uh, so uh, in 1965, we terminated it, ended it, gone. So in a very few short years from the late 60s to the late 70s, went from a situation where Mexico had a 450,000 person per year guest worker program and an unlimited access to uh, new, uh, legal resident visas to a situation where legal resident visas are capped at 20,000 and there's no guest worker program. So uh, this had, in the end, relatively little effect on the number of immigrants coming from Mexico. Migration was so well developed, so well institutionalized, and responding to such a well-established labor demand that uh, it simply continued under, under auspices, and there were, but there was a massive change in the composition of migration. And the auspices shifted from legal to undocumented, illegal, unauthorized migration. And you can see this. Um, uh, these are data. The, uh, the green line is the guest worker program. The blue line is legal immigration in the United States. The red line is undocumented migration in the United States. Um, the green and the blue come from official U.S. immigration statistics. The red line is a net undocumented migration, which I estimated um, using data from the Mexican Migration Project in combination with census data in New Mexico. Uh, so what you see is the Bracero program was humming along, and then in 65, we end the Bracero program, and we start capping 
uh, uh, visas, and what happens? Undocumented migration takes off. And it climbs and climbs with some fits and starts and peaks uh, around, uh, what is it, around 1990. Uh, <clears throat> so basically, we took a series of actions that made it next to impossible for Mexicans to come in legally. They came in illegally. Not much a change in terms of the numbers or the flow, but the composition changed dramatically. And um, uh, uh, migrants, uh, suddenly we had a growing illegal population in the United States. The second thing that happened, it was in the 1980s, uh, the US uh, intervened in Central America and launched the Contra War in particular. And this brought about a surge of refugees from El Salvador, Guatemala, Nicaragua, and Honduras. Our um, uh, immigration and our refugee policy and asylum policy, uh, as you may be aware, is heavily politicized so that if you were fleeing a right-wing government, uh, you were not eligible for asylum or refuge. Uh, but if you were fleeing a less left-wing government, like the Sandinistas or the Cubans, uh, you were more or less welcomed in and given a brief path to a permanent resident status. So um, Nicaraguans, in particular from Central America, were granted permanent, uh, temporary protected status very quickly. And then uh, through the NACAR Act, the Nicaraguan Adjustment and Central American Relief Act, were uh, basically given a path to uh, permanent resident status. Whereas Salvadorans, Guatemalans, Hondurans, many were forced to enter as undocumented migrants. Their asylum cases were treated very differently. Um, and uh, even those that were granted temporary protected status after the end of the Contra Wars and the Cold War, uh, Congress suddenly revoked it. People have been living here in the United States for 10 years with legal, legally, and then Congress says temporary protected status is over. Um, you have 30 days to leave the country. Well, they had families. They had American-born kids. They had jobs. They had houses. Most of these people didn't leave. So, um, uh, uh, and you can see this in the data. We did an analysis of data that we collected in Nicaragua. We developed an index of the intensity of the U.S. intervention by um, looking through a LexisNexis and uh, selecting, uh, counting the number of times uh, Contra Nicaragua was paired with things like fight, die, kill, massacre, and so on. And uh, just this is the citation count by year. So you see it, it starts from nothing, and it, and it coincides with real uh, events in the, in the history of the Contra intervention. So that's kind of a rough index of the Contra intervention. We put it next to the dotted line is the US, is US immigration statistics. So, um, and these are statistics for legal resident aliens. And it's displaced by two years. That's because they enter in temporary protected status, and then they adjust to become permanent residents. And it almost exactly mirrors this bogus count we did from the LexisNexis. Uh, and then we looked at the um, Latin American Migration Project data, where we actually have the time of departure, not the time they became legal resident aliens, and it matches. And you, we, we estimated much fancier econometric models that controlled for GDP and, and economic conditions and so on and so forth. And the single most powerful predictor is the, is the, is the uh, uh, American Contra intervention. So basically, through a series of policies that, people, that had nothing to do really with immigration, one was civil rights and one was fighting the Cold War, we produced a large population of undocumented migrants. That's heavily dominated by Mexicans. These are the numbers as of uh, 2008, according to um, uh, U.S. Office of Immigration Statistics, about 7 million Mexicans. The next closest is El Salvador at 570,000, then Guatemala, then our former colony, the Philippines, 
and then Honduras. And it trails off from there. So our undocumented population is almost entirely made up of Mexicans and Central Americans. Overwhelmingly Mexicans, about 62%, another 14% from Central America. And the whole rest of the world is only 24%, including in massive countries like China and, um, and, and India. Uh, the fact that the United States came to house a large and growing population of people who could be labeled as illegal and was uh, experiencing the continued entry of people that could be labeled as illegal uh, allowed uh, uh, political entrepreneurs, pundits, uh, a new opportunity to frame immigrants as something that was threatening and bad and dangerous to the United States. Uh, the metaphors that immediately came forth, first it was the flood, we're being flooded, and then it was invaded, the invasion metaphor. And immigrants came to be labeled as threats, as illegals, as subversives, terrorists, invaders, occupiers. Uh, our, co uh, our colleague in anthropology, Leo Chavez, uh, uh, who's at uh, uh, UC Irvine, uh, coded up magazine covers, Time, Newsweek, US News World Report, uh, for the period 1965 to 2000 that dealt with immigration and he coded them whether they were alarmist, affirmative, or neutral. As you can see, almost three quarters were alarmist. Uh, those that were affirmative almost always tended to be around the 4th of July, celebrating you know, the, uh, us as a nation of immigrant. And only 9% uh, were neutral. Uh, the pr prevalence of, of alarmist covers increases over time uh, from the 70s to the 80s to the 1990s. Um, when he did a content analysis of the text of the magazines and the articles that were accompanying these cover stories, they found two framing metaphors, the marine metaphor depicting immigration as a tidal wave that's flooding the United States and threatening to inundate its culture, and then martial metaphors where the border is portrayed as a battleground that's under attack from alien invaders. Border patrol officers are outgunned, defenders trying to hold the line, and hold the line is official, an official program of the Border Patrol uh, against attacking hordes. Uh, they even uh, termed them bonsai charges. Uh, uh, and uh, aliens became a time bomb that was ticking away, waiting to explode and destroy American culture and values. And over time, there was a gradual shift from, uh, from marine to the martial metaphors. The shift was uh, really consolidated in a speech by Ronald Reagan in 1985 when he first, he was the first president to frame immigration as a question of national security. Communists in Central America will, I quote, create a tidal wave of refugees and this time they'll be feet people and not boat people, swarming into our country seeking safe haven from the communist repression to the south. Terrorists and subversives are just two days driving time from the border crossing at Harlingen, Texas. Immigrants constitute a fifth column because communist agents will feed on the anger and frustration of recent Central and South American immigrants who do not realize their own version of the American dream. Um, <clears throat> so uh, in the years since, uh, war metaphors have become standard, standard trope in, uh, used to describe immigration from Mexico in particular and from Latin America more generally. Lou Dobbs, of course, has written a book uh, where he terms, uh, and he has a TV show, uh, where uh, he uh, uh, explicitly terms uh, the, uh, the immigration from Mexico as an invasion of illegal aliens and as part of a war on the middle class. 
our good friend Patrick Buchanan, sees illegal immigration as part of what he calls the Aztlan plot, uh, hatched by Mexicans seeking to recapture lands lost in the 1848 Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. If any of you Mexicans, are Mexicans out there, you probably know all about this. Um, uh, and uh, here I quote, uh, if we do not get control of our borders and stop this greatest invasion in history, I see the dissolution of the United States and the loss of the American Southwest, culturally and linguistically, if not politically, to Mexico. Then our good friend from our sister institution, Harvard, uh, Samuel P. Huntington, uh, asserts that unlike past immigrant groups, Mexicans and other Latinos have not assimilated into the mainstream, U.S. culture forming instead their own political and linguistic enclaves from Los Angeles to Miami and rejecting the Anglo-Protestant values that built the American dream. And the United States ignores this, at its, this challenge at its peril. Uh, less lofty uh, is Mr. Jim Gilchrist, who founded the Minutemen Defense Corps, uh, the Minutemen Program. Uh, and uh, I take particular grievance uh, uh, at this because if you type MMP into uh, Google, you get the Mexican Migration Project, but you also get the Minuteman Project. Um, and if you go to the website, he says the Minutemen were founded to do the job the government won't do, defend the U.S. border. It deploys volunteers to patrol the border, prevent the entry of drug dealers, gang bangers, and way too many criminal foreign nationals who are creating havoc in our communities and threatening our public safety. Uh, the Minutemen, after it appeared, uh, Leo Chavez in another book showed that it quickly became a media sensation and was widely diffused all over the country. Uh, more than 1,700 articles in, in 2005 and 1,100 in 2006, and I, the last time I checked the website, uh, the headline was Undocumented Migrants Illegal and Ready to Kill. I pulled this off yesterday. Uh, the American Daily uh, is a conservative blog uh, out of Tucson, Arizona. The headline for the story was War on Terror Begins at U.S.-Mexico Border. It's time to recognize that America's war on terror is being fought in places other than Iraq and Afghanistan. In fact, our most critical theater of war is being fought at the U.S.-Mexico border. Our enemies are unlawful migrants who willfully violate our borders and thumb their noses at U.S. immigration laws. That was yesterday. <clears throat> um, uh, the anthropo noted anthropologist at Stanford University, Renato Rosaldo, uh, has noted that the Mexico-U.S. border has become theater, and border theater has become social violence. Actual violence has become inseparable from symbolic ritual violence on the border, crossings, invasions, lines of defense, high-tech surveillance, and more. So, uh, and, and this is particularly true uh, since 9-11. Uh, and the Mexico-U.S. border has become confounded with terrorism and the war on terror, in spite of the fact that Mexico has no Islamic populations, Mexico has no terrorist cells, no terrorists have ever attempted to cross from Mexico to the United States. And if you were Al-Qaeda, where would you go to try to cross into the United States? Would you go to Tijuana and face the most militarized border anywhere in the country, in the world between two peaceful countries, or would you perhaps hop a plane to Canada and then uh, vault across the border? And in Canada, there are large Islamic populations, and there are terrorist cells, and terrorists have attempted to cross into the United States. But uh, no matter, uh, most of our attention is focused on Mexico. So the rise of illegal migration, which was an unanticipated consequence of a variety of policy decisions taken in venues that had nothing to do with immigration, led to uh, an opportunity for political pundits to demonize the migrants as criminals, as illegal people, therefore criminals, subversives, 
potential terrorists threatening to the interests of the United States. This, in turn, spawned a legal war on immigrants beginning in 1986 with the passage of IRCA, uh, uh, formerly known as the Immigration Reform and Control Act, which criminalized undocumented hiring in the United States for the first time uh, and began militarizing the Mexico-U.S. border. In 1993-1994, the U.S. launched two blockade operations. The first one was called Operation Blockade in El Paso, uh, and it was an all-out militarization of the border in the El Paso sector. That proved to be such a success uh, uh, that the local INS chief became the congressman from El Paso, Texas, and he now sits in Congress. Uh, and the Clinton administration took note of, uh, never, it's never slow to pick up on popular politics, saw what a great success was, and then they launched uh, Operation um, Gatekeeper in San Diego, replicating the militariz militarization of the border uh, uh, going between Tijuana and San Diego, literally building a wall, a steel wall made of corrugated uh, metal that was torn up from Gulf War I, tarmac, brought over in ships to San Diego, offloaded, and then erected as a steel wall, which uh, local uh, wits promptly dubbed the Tortilla Curtain. 1996, Immigration and Welfare Reform Acts together banned legal immigrants from receiving many entitlements and began to strip away rights not of undocumented migrants, but of legal permanent resident aliens in the United States. Uh, and they raised uh, thresholds, in income thresholds, required of immigrant families to sponsor their relatives in an attempt to cut down on the entry of family members. And uh, not, not well known as a piece of immigration legislation is the 1996 Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, which authorized the expedited exclusion of legal immigrants if they'd ever, ever broken the law, including immigration violations. And it was made uh, 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 to apply before, any time before the law had passed. It was, ex post, it was applied ex post facto, so that uh, uh, many people got caught in this trap where, um, I know of one case where a Cambodian came over at age two uh, from, uh, as a refugee, uh, got, became a legal resident alien, uh, got in gang trouble when he was a teenager, uh, straightened his life out, uh, and got married, got a job, and then wanted to apply for citizenship. When he applied for citizenship, they did a background check, found that he had a felony conviction, and he was deported back to Cambodia. Many millions of people fall into this sort of, of, of uh, uh, some circle of Dante's hell. Um, this is particularly relevant to Mexicans because we know from data that I and others have collected that two-thirds of all legal Mexican immigrants in the United States have prior illegal experience. And that renders them potentially deportable, no matter what their current status. Uh, 1996 legislation also authorized the 287G program that authorized state and local enforcement agencies to arrest and detain undocumented migrants to get local authorities involved in immigration enforcement for the first time uh, in American history. The 2001 USA Patriot Act uh, authorized the deportation without hearing or presentation of evidence of any alien, legal or illegal, that the Attorney General had reason to believe might commit uh, further or facilitate acts of terror. All of these terms are left undefined. So basically, on the say-so of the Attorney General, any foreigner can be arrested at any time in the United States and held uh, incommunicado with no right to appeal. And, and uh, the, under expedited exclusion, they will undergo a secret hearing and be expulsed from the United States 
with very little recourse. So um, that set the legal foundations for the war on immigrants. Uh, and then if any, of, if any of you happen to be immigrants out there that hold green cards, my advice to you is become citizens as soon as you can because you are supremely vulnerable. Uh, anyone, no matter what station, you could be a Princeton professor, have a green card holder, and if you, you could be arrested uh, tomorrow. Uh, and if you get a D, DUI conviction or something, you could be deported immediately. And you could be held in this immigration detention system with very little right of appeal uh, uh, in, a, in, a, in a black box, which I'll come back to uh, later. So prosecuting the war on immigrants based on this legislation, we've seen a massive expansion of border patrol in terms of the number of agents, the size of the budget, the line watch, number of line watch hours, that's hours spent patrolling the border, huge ongoing volume of arrests at the border, apprehensions and so-called voluntary deportate, 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 departures, where you get arrested and they say, uh, you waive your right to a, a hearing, and then they say, and then you're voluntarily returned to, to Mexico. Uh, there's been an exponential increase in, deportions, in deportations from the internal, within the United States, internal arrests and expulsions, uh, and a rapid growth in the immigration detention system, such that it's now the fastest growing component of the criminal justice complex of the United States, and sp a spread of enforcement actions to state and local levels. So this is just uh, uh, indicators of the rapid rapidity of the rise in immigration enforcement. Um, uh, these uh, are, to put them on the same scale, I've expressed uh, line watch hours, INS budget, and border patrol budget uh, as a ratio to the, uh, the value in 1986. So the scale is the number of times it's increased since 1986. So line watch hours is increased by a factor of more than 80. Uh, the uh, uh, INS budget by a factor of about 70. The border patrol budget by a factor of about 50. These are the number of uh, annual number of border apprehensions uh, as undocumented migration uh, rose after all the legal, legal avenues were cut off in '65. Uh, apprehensions on the border rose, reached a peak in the late 1990s, and have come down since then. And I'll talk more about the coming down, but we're still arresting at the border around a million people a year. Uh, what's even more remarkable is the increase in deportations from within the United States. Uh, this was almost unheard of until the late 1990s. So uh, the 1990 Immigration Act um, began uh, 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 the process of ramping up uh, internal enforcement. Uh, then the 1996 Anti-Terrorism Act brought about a new spurt, and then the Patriot Act really set loose the floodgates. So um, as you can see, from around 10,000 migrants being deported per year, up through about 1998, we are now deporting around 350,000 people per year. When I read, when I first studied immigration, we read about the terrible old black days of the Great Depression and the deportation campaigns that the United States launched during the Great Depression uh, to uh, forcibly expel Mexicans during that era. Uh, in those years, only 120,000 people per year were being expulsed at the height of the deportation campaign. We're now pushing 360,000. 2009 statistics. Average number of immigrants in detention has uh, jumped from about 6,200 in 1992 to 31,000, more than 31,000 in uh, 2008. We're presently processing through the immigration detention system, uh, pushing 400,000 people per year. <clears throat> immigration 
related pieces of legislation passing in state legislatures have gone from small numbers before 2005, didn't even keep track of them, it was so infrequent, uh, and uh, goes from 300 up to about 1,400, and the number of pieces that pass go from 36 to uh, 259. So increasingly, the state and local authorities are getting involved. And finally, the 287G agreements are agreements under which uh, basically state and local forces are deputized to carry out immigration enforcement, and they receive funds from the federal government to do so. And so enterprising local sheriffs can uh, become money-making operations by uh, going out and rounding up illegal migrants, putting them in their jail. Instead of having empty jails uh, costing them money, they have empty jails that are they're bringing in revenue from the federal government. Uh, the most famous uh, one of these sheriff, sheriffs is Sheriff Apio in Maricopa County, uh, Arizona, which is Phoenix. Uh, he uh, uh, has built an entire political uh, apparatus uh, based on apprehending illegal migrants in the Phoenix metropolitan area. Uh, he fills his jails, and, and he still wants more and more revenue, so he's built tent cities in public parks around Phoenix where he houses thousands and thousands of more people. And to gain more attention, uh, he uh, uh, engages in deliberate acts of humiliation. Uh, he dresses Latin, Latino men, macho men, in pink shirts and parades them through the center of town in handcuffs and leg shackles uh, so that people can observe them as part of an act of humiliation. Uh, this was not sufficient, and so he came up with the idea of dressing them in pink boxer shorts, parading them through the 110-degree sun with no shirt and tied together with pink handcuffs as a further act of humiliation. There's the sheriff giving an interview to local television news. This has nothing to do with immigration enforcement, nothing to do with deterring people from migrating to the United States, uh, nothing to do, do really with enforcing immigration laws in the United States. It's all about building his political reputation at the expense of immigrants and doing everything in his power to humiliate them uh, and demean them as human beings. It's caught on. Big uh, item in Halloween this year on uh, the Halloween websites were illegal alien costumes. So here you have an illegal alien, and it says so right on his uniform, so you know, an orange jumpsuit. And he's holding something called a green card. And uh, further dehumanizing the alien is the fact that he's depicted as a space alien. Uh, and uh, why stop there? Uh, many people believe we have the first uh, non-citizen president of the United States. So just add an Obama mask, and you've got uh, illegal alien Obama. Uh, and um, if you want to really make sure that everybody understands it's a Mexican, then you add the alien and you add the bigote, the Mexican mustache, like the Pancho Villa mustache. And, and, and then you got Sheriff Apaya's pink cap on top. And then if you really want to be a big hit at the, uh, at the um, Halloween party, why not show up with a luscious Border Patrol babe on your arm? Uh, and uh, these things are all publicly available and we're selling well uh, in this last holiday season. So, uh, consequences of this war on immigrants. Uh, public opinion, uh, 2006 survey of American adults, uh, almost half said immigrants threaten American values. 54% uh, said immigrants, uh, Americans need to be protected from foreign influence. And of those who had heard of the Minutemen, 60% approved of their activity. <clears throat> Hate crimes have been rising uh, steadily, uh, particularly since 9-11. Uh, 
uh, according to the uniform uh, crime reports from the FBI. <coughs> and uh, so public opinion has shifted decidedly against uh, Mexicans uh, and Latinos. And um, literally for a Latin American migrant in the United States, increasingly the United States uh, appears to be a police state. They're constantly at fear of being uh, deported, of being arrested, of being caught up in a wave, of driving, you know, and, and having a flat tire, and the police come to even help you, and then they see you're an immigrant, and they ask for your ID, and boom, you're in the immigration detention system, and, uh, and you're in trouble. Um, uh, now I want to talk about the consequences for the immigrants' migratory behavior, which you might think that all this uh, immense enforcement apparatus, all the anti-immigrant hostility would um, do something to prevent immigrants from coming to the United States. Um, well, um, this is the figure I showed you before, uh, and you'll notice that um, uh, uh, undocumented migration continued to rise, but then fell off, uh, and now is actually about zero. Uh, and I'll come back to this in a little bit. Um, <clears throat> when you look and deconstruct what happened, and here I'm using Mexican Migration Project data, um, when, uh, during this period when anti-immigrant uh, uh, legislation was passing, when enforcement actions were increasing exponentially, um, they were having very modest impacts on the actual rate of migration or probability of migration in the United States. Uh, the lower line shows the probability of taking a first illegal trip to the United States, deciding for the first time to go. And um, that kind of rumbles along, declines a little bit through the 90s, and then only starts falling after the year 2000. That's when uh, border enforcement and internal enforcement particularly increased exponentially. Uh, for experienced migrants, it actually had the opposite effect. Uh, they were more likely to go. As border uh, crossing became more expensive, uh, people who didn't, wouldn't have gone before start migrating to the United States so they can get in before it gets even harder. And so up through uh, around 1999, uh, probability of taking an additional trip, given that you've already come and gone once, uh, actually goes up. Uh, Meanwhile, the cost of coming into the United States uh, increases almost exponentially, going from an average uh, smuggling fee of about $500 to something close approaching $3,000 now. Uh, meanwhile, the risks of border crossing have gone way up. This is the death rate along the border. Uh, basically, goes from about uh, 2 per 10,000 to uh, attempted crossings to around uh, uh, 6 per 10,000 attempted crossings. And in raw terms, this is three to 400 extra deaths per year. Um, but surprisingly, all that buildup at the border hasn't changed the odds of apprehension very much. These are the probability of getting arrested on a, any given attempt at crossing the border. See that it went down a bit after IRCA, went back up again as they militarized the uh, San Diego and um, uh, El Paso uh, sectors. Im immigrants got wise, they went around it, it went down again. Then as it rose exponentially, it went up again, but it really hasn't fluctuated that much. So basically, we've set up a funny calcul calculus for the rational immigrant. On the one hand, your chances of getting killed or injured are higher. Your out-of-pocket costs are higher. The, the experience is distinctly uh, less uh, uh, pleasurable than it used to be. And, uh, but meanwhile, your odds of apprehension haven't gone up at all. So um, what do you do? Uh, you migrate, and then once you're across, you've paid the upfront costs, and you need, you've paid more out-of-pocket costs, you need to work longer to amortize the cost, you stay longer. 
And so the biggest effect of, of the militarization of the Mexico-U.S. border was not to deter people from coming, but rather to discourage them from returning home once they were in. And what happened was the probability of return migration plummeted. So starting um, uh, particularly after the 86 immigration law, IRCA passed, and then it kind of accelerating as we go through time, the, the red line is the probability that an undocumented migrant uh, will uh, enter the country and leave within 12 months by year. So you see that it goes steadily down from about 45% leaving within one year of entry down to uh, around uh, 5%. Uh, so what happens if you don't affect, particularly through the year 2000, you don't really affect the rate of in-migration. In fact, you may even increase the rate of migration from experienced migrants, but you dramatically reduce the outflow. Um, well, you get massive growth in the undocumented population, which is exactly what happened. So these are um, uh, credible demographic estimates of uh, the size of the undocumented population. The most recent co come from actually from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security itself. So you see that up until 1986, it was growing. It reached about 4 million. IRCA happened, and IRCA offered this legalization to about 3 million people, dropped about 3 million. And then it, it took off and accelerated after we, the more we, through the 90s, the more we uh, accelerated the militarization of the border, the faster the population in the U.S. grew because the fewer people were going home once they'd paid the cost of crossing into the United States. It also altered the geography of immigration in the United States. People began crossing in different places. Uh, so um, the red line is the proportion of mig illegal migrants who crossed through Baja, California. And, into Cal and the number who then settled in California is the blue line. So you see that up until uh, the early 1990s, two-thirds of uh, migrants entered through Baja California into Southern California, and they remained in California. Then that share plummets uh, to a nadir just after 2001, uh, down to about uh, uh, under 30%. So you cut uh, the number going in, crossing into Tijuana by half, and you cut the number going to California by half. And you can see this, this is official census data here. See that uh, from it in the, among Mexican immigrants who arrived uh, from 85 to 90, uh, registered in the 1990 census, uh, almost two thirds went to California, 14% uh, to Texas, 6% uh, went to Illinois, and the entire rest of the country, 17%. Uh, after the militarization of the border, suddenly everything changes, and that change becomes permanent. In 1995 to 2000, 45% go somewhere else. By 2005, 2000 to 2005, 47% go somewhere else. Where do they go? Everywhere. The militarization of the border and the selective hardening of the border and the channeling of the flows away from California uh, turned Mexican immigration from a regional phenomenon affecting three states to a national phenomenon affecting literally all 50 states. So now we have, uh, as a result of our policies, we've got a huge undocumented population. And a huge share of the immigrant population of the United States is, in fact, out of status. So out of all immigrants in the United States, uh, presently, according to 2007 estimates, 31% uh, are undocumented. For places uh, in Latin America, it's very high. Uh, currently, 60% of Mexicans all Mexicans, people born in Mexico, in the United States, 60% are undocumented. Salvadorans, it's 50%. Hondurans, it's 
uh, Guatemala 67, Honduran 68, Brazilians uh, 55, Ecuadorians about uh, 40. And uh, this is again peculiar to Latin America. If you look at the proportion of illegals from uh, Asian countries, it's down uh, in the 15 to 20 percent range. So we've built a large undocumented Latino population in the United States, which uh, in the presence of this uh, uh, large undocumented population spurs ever greater vitriol, ever greater demonization of these people who are illegal by definition. What's the effect on immigrants in terms of their lives? More discrimination, more marginalization. Um, this is the percentage of Hispanics who reported discrimination within the past five years uh, as of 2002, 2006, 2007. As you can see, it's going steadily up. Um, these things, when they affect uh, undocumented migrants, there are 12 million people in undocumented status, but it doesn't just affect undocumented migrants because most undocumented migrants are related to people who are legal and citizens. And this is the composition of the average undocumented household. About a quarter of the inhabitants are citizens of the United States. Uh, and uh, out of the 12, million, uh, the 12 million illegal migrants in the United States, uh, about 15 to 20 million live in houses, households that contain an undocumented migrant. So these police actions have effects on natives as well as immigrants. So the, uh, this is according to a 2006 uh, Pew Hispanic poll. Percentage of Hispanics who worry about deportation, some or a lot. Two-thirds of foreigners. And 32%, a third of natives. That's because they're worried about their relatives. Immigration debate has made life difficult for Hispanics. 72% of foreigners agree. 53% of natives agree. Because of uh, attention to immigration, uh, the following percentages agreed with these statements. They had trouble finding or keeping a job, trouble finding or keeping housing, uh, uh, asked for documents more often, less likely to get government services, less likely to travel abroad. All these things are uh, on the increase. It's also had uh, a series of laws that have had a depressive effect on wage rates in the United States. Uh, these show the average wages earned by legal and undocumented migrants, uh, according to data collected by the Mexican Migration Project. IRCA was a landmark piece of legislation because it, for the first time, criminalized undocumented hiring and made employers liable uh, should they find uh, undocumented migrants uh, in their uh, place, of, place of work. So before 1986, if uh, Jose wants to um, get a job in the United States, he goes to his boss, he says, patron, give me a job. And uh, the boss says, you look like a good worker to me, you're hired. And the immigration authorities come to his factory or his farm or his work site and discovers that 80% you know, of the people are here without authorization. Uh, nothing happens to the employer. Uh, nothing happens at all. Because uh, it's not illegal for him to hire those people. It's illegal for them to be here. So they're deported, and, but they suffer no sanctions. After 86, unless he's taken very specific actions, um, he can be fined and for repeated offenses um, uh, even serve criminal time uh, for immigration violations. So what do employers do? Uh, they no longer hire directly. They begin shifting to subcontracting. So they work through a labor subcontractor. So instead of um, uh, hiring the person directly, you hire a subcontractor who's a legal resident alien or citizen, and that person agrees to provide you with X number of workers for X period of time and X dollars an hour to clean the factory, to stock the shelves at night in Walmart, to uh, uh, to run the restaurant, to serve in the gardening crew, to work construction, whatever. 
Uh, and then when uh, the immigration authorities come and raid and they discover everybody's illegal, then you're like Inspector Renault in, in Casablanca. You're shocked to discover that there are so many illegal aliens working in my place of employ. The biggest um, person, the biggest outfit to be convicted was uh, Walmart, which um, pled no contest and paid a $300 million fine when they discovered all their night stocking crews were working under these labor conditions. Now, if you work through a labor contractor, it doesn't matter what your status is. Everybody gets paid the same lousy wage rate. And there's no return to occupational skill, no return to education, no return to knowing the boss and cultivating the boss. It's all about um, your relationship with the labor subcontractor. And so we see right after IRCA, wages not of undocumented migrants drop so much. They drop a bit, but they're already not paid very much. But the returns to all these other things that legals used to get drop. And legal immigrants um, begin to suffer um, losses in wages. And you can see this um, uh, in US Census data, Census and CPS data. This shows the trends in real hourly wages. You can see that native-born whites and native-born Mexicans both rose, foreign-born Mexican, as soon as the illegal migrants started popping in and uh, 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 started stagnating. And if you look at um, the wages and predict the wages using standard human capital variables and a wage regression like education, experience, and so on, you find that those uh, characteristics count for less and less. The R squared goes down. And um, the wage effect of being a foreign-born Mexican, immigrants are positively selected. They're ambitious. They overcome barriers to get here. They work harder. So other things equal, you expect them to have controlling for everything else. They're in higher wages. And that was certainly the case up through the 1970s. But by uh, the present day, the wage premium for being an immigrant has disappeared. <clears throat> Finally, um, last thing that immigrants are doing is uh, trying to protect themselves to the extent that they can. So legal immigrants, because uh, they are increasingly vulnerable. They increasingly subject to deportation on the whim of a, of a government official. Uh, they are no longer eligible for a variety of American entitlements. Uh, and a big debate right now is whether they are going to be covered in this new health care program. As, as, as we speak, this is a contentious issue. So what's a poor legal immigrant to do? You become a citizen and then you protect yourself. So uh, Congress, in its infinite wisdom, when it legalized um, immigrants uh, in 1986 under IRCA, forced them, as a condition of becoming permanent resident aliens, to learn English, take English classes, and take civics classes, two preconditions for citizenship. And then they turned up the heat immediately and made it very costly not to become a citizen. So guess what happened? There's a massive surge of people towards citizenship, especially among Mexicans, who historically have had the lowest rates of naturalization of any immigrant group. So before uh, uh, the 1990s, very few Mexicans were naturalizing. Then suddenly there's this huge surge in naturalization. So the more that Congress turns up the heat on legal immigrants, the more legal immigrants do what they can to protect themselves, and they do this by becoming citizens. So naturalization petitions have skyrocketed even though the cost of naturalizing has skyrocketed as well. We're charging them, I think, $500 a pop now to, just for the privilege of applying. Um, now, uh, this has a side effect because every citizen you create creates another entitlement for entry into the United States outside of the immigrant quotas. U.S. Um, spouses, minor children, and parents of U.S. citizens do not come under numerical limitations. So if somebody is a green card holder, they, have the, they can petition for the entry of their spouse and minor children who have to wait in line until a visa spot becomes available. 
If they become a citizen, they go out of the line and come immediately in. Moreover, he can bring in his uh, parents outside of any quota. And moreover, under, subject to limitation, he can now sponsor his older children who may be married and uh, his brothers and sisters. So the more citizens you create, the more legal immigrants you create down the road. And you can see this. The green line shows um, the uh, number of people entering as relatives of citizens, which is going up. And it follows at a lag um, the number of people becoming naturalized. So almost everything that Congress has done uh, uh, has backfired. Militarized the border. Didn't stop people from coming. Stopped them from going home. Uh, turn up the heat on, on legal immigrants. Uh, and what happens? They become citizens. And they bring in more legal immigrants. So we have a new reality of immigration. Mexicans, in particular, are cut off from the homeland by a militarized border, marginalized from the U.S. by exclusionary policies and hostile attitudes, and uh, now constitute national rather than a regional population. Never before have so many immigrants been so vulnerable and exploitable, and largely as a result of American policies. There are alternatives. Uh, and I first laid this out in a lecture I I did it at the University of Salamanca in Spain, but uh, took the European as an example of how to manage economic integration and migration in a regional framework that works to the benefit of everyone. And there's the reference in Spanish. When I published it in, um, in English, I published it in a new policy-oriented glossy magazine called Miller McCune, and they gave it a more provocative title. Um, uh, so basically what I'm arguing is that the, the United States would be better off if it were to adopt the European Union as a model for dealing with regional development and migra migratory issues. And follow the example of how the European Union treated Spain when it decided to bring it into the European Union. Spain, uh, uh, before Franco, during the Franco regime, was an authoritarian dictatorship, inward-looking economy, protected economy, very inefficient, very poor, much poorer than the rest of Europe. Sp uh, Franco dies, it becomes a democracy, and they quickly petition for entry into the European Union. The European Union had a big debate. Should we let these guys in? If we let them in, should we give them full labor mobility within the European Union? Ultimately, they decide this is a political project as well as an economic project. And, uh, uh, and uh, Spain enters the European Union in 1986, and shortly thereafter, Spanish nationals acquire full labor mobility. This scared people because there was a persistent wage gap. This is the average, the real D GDP per capita in northern Europe uh, versus Spain. And you can see that it, uh, it, it increased after Spain applied for entry, and it hasn't gone away. It's persisted. Uh, the gap has not closed up. Uh, uh, and according to a, a simple neoclassical model, you would predict continued out-migration until these wages begin to equalize, but that's not what happened. Uh, the minute Spain entered the European Union, the net flow reversed itself, and Spanish migrants began coming back to Spain. Uh, and uh, even though the gap did not uh, change, and the market became much more open, uh, and despite uh, an initial period of high unemployment, which we unfortunately come back to lately, uh, uh, there was an economic boom. And um, this stemmed partly because uh, Spain received uh, a variety of structural adjustment funds from the wealthier countries of Europe, recognizing that to take a country like Spain, remake its economy, 
to a post-industrial standard, bring Spain up to the level of the rest of the European Union with a modern social welfare system, not as generous as Germany's, not as well-developed as, as France's, but you know, adequate, some minimal standard, they made available structural adjustment funds. So rather than spending billions of dollars of uh, erecting a fence along the Pyrenees, they put billions of dollars into structural adjustment funds. And over time, the various market imperfections and inequities that have been driving migration were fairly quickly eliminated, and Spain, within five years of entry, flipped from being a country that exported workers to a country that imported workers. We, of course, uh, did not, uh, uh, when we negotiated NAFTA in 1994, did not um, uh, provide structural adjustment funds. We put our billions of dollars into border enforcement, uh, militarizing the border with the country that would become our second or third largest trading partner. And if you think that Mexico and, and you know, Spain are so different from one another, here's the trajectory of economic openness for Spain. This is basically trade as a percentage of GDP. Um, and um, uh, what happened? Uh, when Mexico joined GAFTA, the, the, wage, the wage gap actually rose. Oh, this is, sorry, these are indicators of how much we've integrated economically in North America. So. Um, uh, trade has increased by a factor of 12 since um, 1986. Uh, the movement of tourists, of exchange visitors, of uh, foreign, of uh, intercompany, intracompany trans transferees, students, all these movements across the border have increased in the wake of NAFTA. Uh, Mexican treaty investors increased by a factor of 200. Uh, and of course, uh, Mexico's richest man is now bailing out the New York Times. <coughs> um, uh, but rather than um, uh, reduce migration, it actually accelerated. As I said, the militarization of the border backfired. Uh, beating on legal immigrants backfired. Uh, and as Mexico moved towards openness and became more and more integrated within a North American economy, uh, permanent immigration actually rose rather than falling as what happened in Spain. <laughs> and if you think, oh, well, you know, Spain is, 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 not, is not as poor as Mexico, Look at what the European Union is doing now. These are um, the wage gap between Spain, uh, Northern Europe, Poland, and Mexico. Poland has about the same GDP per capita as Mexico, and yet Poland is being brought in uh, under similar terms that will result in free labor mobility at some point uh, in the near future. So required policy actions. We need to bite the bullet and legalize undocumented migrants. What I advocate is a amnesty for persons who entered the country as minors. They are guilty of no sin except obeying their parents. Our own graduate, Daniel Padilla, came here, what, at age two, three years old from the Dominican Republic. He's a graduate of Princeton University, one of the top graduates of Princeton University, and he's ineligible for applying for a green card for 10 years. And he was forced to leave the United States. Uh, there are three million people, at least, in that kind of, in that circumstance. Uh, if they have no criminal record, they've grown up in the United States, they speak English, they graduated from high school, the sooner we move the burden of illegality, the better it will be for them and for us. For those who uh, entered into undocumented status as adults, okay, um, maybe they did something bad, maybe they didn't. As I pointed out with the Guatemalans, you could have had your temporary protected status revoked and given 30 days to leave the country after living there 10 years. Uh, so there's lots of ways to become an illegal migrant. Um, but anyway, so they're in violation. So you set up an earned legalization program where by paying taxes, by learning English, by passing a civics test, um, by uh, having American-born kids, uh, you earn points towards um, permanent resident status, and then you qualify. And at the point you qualify, you pay a fine to pay your debt to society. 
and start uh, 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 with a clean slate uh, in life because you've paid your debt for the immigration infraction. Um, we need to expand the quotas for Mexico and Canada uh, because we're in a uh, basically uh, integrated North American market and economic integration creates more legitimate demands for uh, permanent resident visas that can be accommodated with a strict quota of 20,000 persons per year. Um, we should work to restore the natural circularity of flows between Mexico and the U.S. Um, by expanding the guest worker program and demilitarizing the border, taking money that we are spending now on useless, counterproductive border enforcement and channeling it perhaps into uh, structural adjustment funds and, and other things to help rebuild the United States, um, and revisit NAFTA to make it less predatory, uh, remove agricultural protections, and uh, authorize structural adjustment funds as part of a broader pattern process of North American integration. And I think if we were to do these things, uh, we would end up like the European Union and Spain and Portugal and Greece and all these poor countries that came in. They become integral part of a, of a common uh, political and economic enterprise, creating a zone of peace and prosperity with controlled movements uh, and, uh, and rising incomes for all concerned. So uh, just like to remind you that in North America, the lines we've drawn are in many ways arbitrary and artificial. And now, under treaty, we are, we are creating, as we speak, an integrated North American economy, and we need to bring our immigration policies in line uh, with the realities of North American geography and economic integration. So, thank you. Well, the first issue, um, uh, for a long time, some of the hardliners would say, first, we've got to get control of the border, control of the border. Uh, and in, in essence, they've got control of the border now. Illegal migration from Mexico, new entries have dropped to zero. And, and this is corroborated by um, studies that Cassell and others in Homeland Security have done of the size of the immigrant population. It's peaked, and it's slowly, slowly trending down. But the people that are already here are not going back. They're digging in. Um, uh, so we've controlled the border. So new, new illegal entries for the moment have stopped. Whether this is because of the massive increase in militarization, which occurred after 2001, or um, because of the collapse of the economy in 2008, I think it's both. Um, the downturn occurs before 2008, um, but it plummets 
um, in, in recent years and really hits the zero point. So I think uh, this huge enforcement effort, massive enforcement effort, uh, especially in, within the United States, not just at the border, in the context of an economic collapse, which we'll draw an end for the moment to undocumented migration. Uh, uh, I've studied the process, and so has Marta, of, of, of Latino uh, patterns of uh, assimilation, integration, adaptation in the United States, and there just doesn't seem to be a whole lot of evidence that they're, uh, they're forming, uh, uh, they're interested in forming uh, their own parallel society, or in fact, forming their parallel society. To the extent that it's happening, it's because of the barriers we're, we're putting in front of them to uh, free mobility and integration. And uh, we did, I did a study with um, uh, Ruben Rumbaut, who happens to be Marta's brother-in-law, who's a professor at UC Irvine, um, uh, where we looked at language uh, retention across the generations in Southern California. Uh, and we found that by the third generation, Spanish was deader than a doornail. Uh, uh, the U.S. is and has always been a graveyard for languages. Uh, and Spanish is no exception. It's very difficult for even parents who want to per perpetuate ability in Spanish to do so uh, in their kids. And they, so the classic pattern is the first generation, they learn English, but of course they never learn English fluent, as fluently as a native speaker. The kids, if they grow up in the States, they're English dominant. They may speak Spanish, but they're English dominant. Their kids don't learn Spanish. And that, that's happening in Southern California, which has the largest density of Spanish speaking speakers and media uh, anywhere in the country. Uh, and patterns of segregation, uh, which I also study. If you look at segregation levels, we had this massive increase in population, and a lot of those people are in undocumented status, but segregation levels did not increase. And if you look at what happens with rising socioeconomic status, with moving from immigrant to uh, native-born generations, segregation levels drop progressively. And Latinos are far less segregated at any economic level than African Americans. Uh, well, that was, uh, uh, I think, a consequence of the Civil Rights Movement as well. Uh, in the con yeah, in the, con in, the, in the context of the Civil Rights Movement, um, the Bracero program, which you know was not perfect, it was an exploited program in many ways, came to be seen as something akin to Southern sharecropping, an institution for labor extraction that, uh, that exploited poor minorities and uh, a coalition of unions, Catholic Church, immigrant advocacy groups basically uh, made this case and prevailed and it was eliminated. Um, in, you know, if, if I, retrospectively, I can look back and say, well, what they should have done is reform the Bracero program not ended, uh, but uh, at the time, they just ended it, and they, all these actions were taken with no appreciation for the ramifications uh, that would occur in coming years in the immigration system. Yes? I'm guardedly optimistic. I'm less optimistic than I used to be. Um, because he, he has, uh, since assuming office, he's continued the hard line of enforcement policies. The number of deportations, the funds allocated to border enforcement, the ICE raids, none of these things have dropped off. He's continuing this hard line of anti-immigrant enforcement. I think he's making a political calculation that um, he's going to maintain the hard line, and then when it comes time for reform, he can say, look, I've been tough. 
maybe you can even say using my data that immigrations, illegal migration has dropped to zero. Now it's time for the reform. I think that's his political calculation. So uh, he's going to do health care first. Um, then he's probably going to tackle um, uh, re-regulation re of Wall Street. And then he's going to tackle uh, uh, immigration reform. Uh, this calculus um, has its logic. But it also has a, its illogic because it's really, really, really antagonizing and angering Latinos in the United States uh, who feel betrayed. Uh, they gave him two-thirds of their votes. And this is an issue that matters to them. Uh, most Latinos, even if they're native-born, they have friends and relatives who are immigrants. And many of those people are undocumented. And Latinos don't see attacks on illegal migrants as attacks on violators of the immigration system. They see them as ethnic attacks on them. And so uh, uh, I don't think it's a very smart political calculation on his part to toe this hard line, because he's trying to placate people who will never be placated. The hardliners on immigration, no matter what he does, they hate immigrants, period. There's nothing he can do that's going to make them uh, feel any more charitable or more likely to vote in favor of immigration reform. Meanwhile. He is angering a pillar of his political uh, coalition that supports him and his candidacy. So I personally think it's a bad political calculation. But uh, you know, I'm just a professor at Princeton. You know, he's the guy that got elected to president of the United States. You know, maybe three years from now, I'll be saying, "Man, I, you know, I, I'm sorry, I doubted you, uh, Barack. Uh, you, you, know, you had it all figured out. You had a master plan." So. It remains to be seen. But I mean, he, he's going to do something. Uh, I think he pretty much has to. Uh, but whether uh, it's the, the timing is the big issue. Uh, and the guest worker program, um, people debate that as if, like, oh, this is something you know, we may or may, we may do. We were, we're already there. Last year, we imported 350,000 guest workers from Mexico quietly, with nobody even knowing. They slowly ratcheted up the number of H-2A visas. And so now. We're back almost to where we were in the 1950s with nobody even knowing it. So the debate about should we have a guest worker program is almost moot. Uh, and, and people are you know, pontificating on the stand that uh, they've, it's a battle they've already lost. Uh, so really, the only issue left then is what, what we want to do with the quotas. And the biggest, most pressing issue is this large population, 12 million people that are out of status uh, in the United States. Well, I don't know if it's a backfire. It's, a, it's an unanticipated consequence. I assume that by beating on legal immigrants, Congress was trying to stop uh, immigra immigration. And, uh, and rather than stopping immigration, it's actually promoting more immigration in the long term. Uh, uh, personally, I'm happy to have these people as citizens. And I think it's a good thing. Uh, but I don't think that um, the conserv socially conservative Republicans in Congress uh, are, are so keen on the issue right now. Um, and uh, they're liable to hold up legalization and put brakes on the process because I think that they made the correct political calculation that when these people become citizens, they're not going to be Democratic voters um, uh, after all that the Republicans have done to them in the last two decades. Um, so uh, that'll be a big issue. So 
there may be there probably be a legalization program, but they may string out the temporary protected status, temporary status, long time till they become green card holders, and they may even pose special uh, terms before they can apply to citizenship to delay citizenship even further. Um, but that all remains to be seen as part of the political negotiation. Many people, yeah. <laughs> well, it's all about um, framing and identity and putting us into categories. Uh, so uh, Spanish became European, so it became an us, and accepted as part of the European um, franchise. Um, there are many entrepreneurs busy right now uh, trying to make Mexicans them, uh, those people, and, uh, and attributing all kinds of bad things to those people. Uh, the biggest uh, barrier is up here in our heads. Uh, and the political mobilization that's occurring all around these identity boundaries. But in point of fact, you know, Mexicans are Catholics. They're not Muslims. I mean, Turkey, uh, Turkey's entry into the European Union is more problematic because it's an Islamic nation. And that's, that's, that's where European integration is stalling. Uh, but Mexico's not Muslim. Mexico's Catholic. Uh, Mexico is a, you know, a Western, uh, Western country. It's, it's, it, and since NAFTA, it's become more and more American. Uh, uh, so that uh, it's really the way people think about Mexicans. And, and Americans get, really from the media, all these kinds of misguided views and stereotypes and uh, impressions about Mexico that just aren't true. And uh, uh, most Americans, I think, believe that Mexico's population is out of control. Its uh, fertility rate is now 2.2 children per woman. Ours is 2.1. Uh, most people think that Mexico is this abjectly poor country. Its per capita income is um, uh, high by third world standards and uh, is, as I said, it's about the same as Poland, which is coming into the European Union. Uh, it's got, uh, in many measures, it is more developed than many of the Eastern European countries uh, uh, that are coming into the European Union. So the main, uh, the big uh, stumbling block is the way Americans have been socialized to think about Mexico, to think about Latin America. Uh, and that's why I give lectures like this. Well, we don't have to convince those people because they're only about 20, 20, 25 percent of the population, the real hardcore anti-immigrants. And there's probably not much we can do. Uh, I'm sure Jim Gilchrist at the Minutemen program uh, is not going to come around to my way of thinking. And nor is Lou Dobbs um, or Pat Buchanan. Uh, but um, if you look at the public opinion data, although you get these spikes in anti-immigrant sentiment, they're not very deeply held. 
and uh, immig illegal migration is not the number one issue. It's way down here for most people. And most people are willing to compromise and willing to support these various pillars of immigration reform. If you ask them, would you uh, agree to a guest worker program? Would you support some kind of legalization program? Would you support increasing the quotas? You get thir uh, majorities of 60% or so of Americans say yes. So really what it takes is someone like Obama, really, a person with a bully pulpit in a leadership position to say that you know this is what we got to do. We're here in North America. We're all integrated. We can't um, thrive and prosper if w one segment of the continent is uh, is not moving ahead. We have to do this together. Uh, Mexicans are people just like us. Uh, let's come together and solve this problem. Uh, I think that, that would go a long way. But we have not had uh, until now that kind of leadership and I continue to hope for it from the Obama administration. We have time for just one more question here. Um, I think we never understood how true it is that if a Mexican family member um, is bringing a United States citizen person to the United States, it is considered a home A citizen is a citizen and has every right as any other citizen in the United States under current law except becoming president of the United States. Uh, uh, now, w what you do with your other citizenship is uh, largely up to the other country. Uh, in the past, Mexico stripped um, its nationals of their citizenship when they just to become American citizens. But uh, in the context of NAFTA, Mexico began looking forward and realized, you know, we're, we're creating this, you know, multinational, integrated North America. And about 10 years ago, they passed a law that enabled uh, and facilitated, indeed, dual nationality. Uh, so that uh, a Mexican who naturalizes now does not lose their Mexican citizenship when they get their passport. Uh, same thing is true for French. The French, when they naturalize their US citizenship, you're always French. And you know you have to, when you swear the oath of allegiance to the United States and you become a citizen, you have to Forswear allegiance to all foreign potentates and so on, and you know theoretically you throw away your French passport. But if you go to the French embassy, they'll give you another one. Uh, uh, same happens with Israelis. Uh, so uh, it really depends more on the country of origin than than the United States. And Mexico has really been more forward-looking in thinking about this in the context of a North American free trade agreement than the United States has been. I hope all of you will join me. Fascinating. There's some aspect of immigration 